0: If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the very word of God.
1: I turned it on. Talk about being anxious. I'm afraid I'm going to fall in front of everybody. Um, Those guys are really worried that I'm going to fall over up here, like some legal suit against the church or something. Um, I've had lots of reasons to be anxious this last week. The it, not the knee thing, mostly happened to preach about money. So um, that wasn't in the sermon. Um, but I wonder if Ben made me preach this passage so that he could still say he's never preached about money. Part of it? No? Okay. Just checking. Put him on the spot. Um, so... I printed my sermon right before this, and I realized the last two pages didn't print while I was sitting there on the front row. So, probably go off the computer here. Um, so, church, where are our hearts? That's the, the, the question that this passage asks us. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid, my, my anxiety about preaching on money was that um, going through this, that my brothers and sisters might be offended by what's preached. And I think that the reason for that is because when we come to any passage in the Bible, or just when we're in confrontation with one another um, in conversation, when we are questioned, our motives are questioned, or what we believe to be true is questioned, our natural state of our mind and our heart is to become defensive. And that's not what Jesus wants at all when we come to this passage. So please don't be anxious as we begin to to look at this. Because um, that's not... That's not the goal of the sermon. That's not the goal of Jesus at all um, when we come to this passage. Um, he wants us to be anxiety-free, believe it or not. And I say that, and most of us sitting in this room are like, what would that be like to be anxiety-free, right? Um, but um, there, there's this state that we are in fortunately, as the church, um, where many people think that Jesus doesn't have expectations of us, and that's just not true. Um, we think that Jesus just wants to hear us say, I believe in you, and then we can go on our merry way. And if we read the Sermon on the Mount, that's not what he's saying at all. I mean, he's given this huge list of things to do and not do that we've already read through, um, preached through. Um, and so I want us to, to kind of get a context of the passage today by reviewing a little bit of what um, Jesus has already preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we, we see him just giving basic instructions for life all the way up to this point. And I think that that'll help us kind of get a grasp on what it looks like when we come to the, to the section that we're in today. So um, listen to these basic instructions that, that Jesus has given his followers, what he wants his kingdom that he's inaugurating to look like. He, he says that we should look like a people who are poor of spirit, meek. Merciful, that we are to be salt and light, that we are to control our anger, to keep our word forgiving rather than retaliating, to love our enemies, to be generous in helping the poor. We're to pray, we saw last week. The beginning of the passage this week, we're to fast. We are to... Not place earthly treasures above God and his kingdom. Um, My prayer for the past couple of days has been that we would be a people, that we would be a church that eagerly receive the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Because our hearts are not in a place to eagerly receive what Jesus is teaching Um, and not only to hear it, but then to do it. Um, So if you don't mind, let me just pray for us for a moment, and then we'll get into the text. Father, may your spirit prepare our hearts, the hearts of your people. May we, your church, be a people that can truly say that Jesus is our king, that he is our Lord, our master. God, I pray that the words that the, of the sermon that you preached, that they would change us to be kingdom-minded people, that our hearts would seek one master, and that we would truly be able to see you that this lamp, this eye of our body would be able to see you as the great God, the one that is good, and that we don't have to be in control, and that that reality would drastically, radically change who we are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the the 15 verses that Ben read for us this morning... Um, they could easily be broken into three full-length sermons. You've got the, the first section, 16 through 18, deals with fasting, and then you've got the 19 through 24 that deals with treasure of the heart, and then 25 through 34 that deal with anxiety. Um, most of you probably have Bibles that you have those broken out in, he- like in headings there. Um, each of those could be their their own sermon. We don't have time for that in our preaching schedule, so we uh, have lumped them together, and with good reason, because they go together. Um, Jesus hasn't just, like, switched topics as he has come to each of these points. They all fall under the kingdom that he is trying to reveal in this sermon. And so uh, my hope is that we kind of get some context to make sure that what we're looking at today fits that context, and I'm going to kind of briefly pass over fasting um, and focus on the latter two. Not that that fasting is not important, but I'm really not the person to preach about that. Um, I've not well enough experienced in that um, in that command that Jesus has given us here. Um, and so uh, hopefully we can get some better teaching on that. Maybe at our next prayer day, our fasting and prayer day, we can get some in-depth teaching on what that is supposed to look like. Um, But the short of it is, fasting doesn't look like what you think fasting looks like. It's not not eating so that we can seek some answer that we think that God needs to give us. Fasting, biblically, is mourning. It is recognizing that we are not in the kingdom that God desires to be present on earth and getting our hearts in line with that kingdom and wanting it to come. So that's, that's, that's all I got on, on fasting for now. Um, uh, why context? Because without context, we're not going to be able to understand this like, really complicated verse Like right in the middle of this text. You probably heard Ben read it, and you're like, what does that mean? Verse 22, um, it says something like, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Like, what the heck does that mean, right? Like, I mean, anybody like, I know, like, I I didn't. Um, It's a very confusing verse. Um, But if we back out a little bit and we get the big picture, we remember everything that Jesus is teaching about, and then we get a little bit of cultural context, what this idiom means, then we can see it really clearly, pun intended. Um, So the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God. Jesus has now gathered up to this point the largest crowd of people that he has preached to yet that that we know of. And he preaches about the kingdom over and over and over and over again. And so just so that we can see that, I want you to think about the kingdom of heaven. The New Kingdom, what what Jesus is inaugurating, as I kind of briefly run through what we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. It's really important because we don't get that this is what he's talking about, then the passage today gets plucked out and misused. Um, so here we go. We'll start with the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the. This is going to be the the where you kind of cooperate and help me out here. Theirs is the kingdom, right? Theirs is the kingdom. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness for, for sake for theirs is the, the kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven. And then he says, I want you to be salt and light so that you will glorify our father in heaven, this kingdom that he's talking about, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If If you don't have righteousness that is exceeding the law you will not enter the kingdom of heaven and if we if we want to be a part of this kingdom that jesus is talking about then we really need to ask ourselves a question what does that righteousness look like and then he starts teaching like he sets it up like He sets himself up perfectly. Like you have to have a righteousness beyond everything, way beyond even what you thought you needed to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, this is what that's gonna look like. When you have that type of righteousness, this exceeding righteousness, this is what my kingdom is gonna look like. And he starts giving these extensions of the law. And he says, you heard it said, but I say, and, and then he goes into talking about being aware of practicing righteousness before others, and he gives some warnings. Listen to this. Uh, giving in public, you have received your reward. When giving in secret, your reward is in heaven. It's in the kingdom. And then he says, don't pray like the hypocrite, hypocrites. Don't be showy. Don't pray like the the Gentiles with lots and lots of words because your father who is in heaven knows who you are, right? You guys, am I giving you enough evidence so far? Um, When fasting, don't be showy like the hypocrites because they do it so that they can be seen, but your father who is, and this time he says secret, I kind of threw you off, but he says who is in secret Knows that that father that is in the new kingdom, the thing that you don't understand yet, you don't quite see it yet, he's in secret still, in this new kingdom that's coming, he will see and he will reward you, okay? And then he's gonna follow that up with, don't lay it for treasure on earth, but store it in the new kingdom. And then he's gonna say, don't be anxious. Now, When we start saying things like, you have to do this and you can't do this, then there are a lot of people today that are going to jump really quickly to say, you're preaching Jesus plus something. That's not what I'm saying here, because Jesus, God was really clear from the beginning like we see this all through the Old Testament. It's really, really clear in Habakkuk 2.4 when he says that the righteous shall live by faith. And then we really get it clarified um, through Paul's writing in the New Testament. Listen to what, what Paul says in Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also through him, we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that the affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has given it to us, for while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly really, really clear, our righteousness is through Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's that exceeding righteousness that that Jesus has just preached about. It's, It's gonna come through him and him alone. But even in this passage that I just read, he says that that faith produces something through the endurance of our circumstances. He's specifically talking about persecution. God allows us to live out our lives. He puts us through the circumstances that we go through so that he can prove the faith that he's given us. That's what that passage just says. We often wanna ask, why, 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 why this, why that? Jesus answered it on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We'll see here in a few minutes. Paul answers it right here. It's so that God can prove himself. Greater than any of those circumstances. Um, so, up to this point, we see that Jesus requires a righteousness that only can be found in faith in Him. But in that righteousness, He wants us to behave in a certain way. He He wants us to look a certain way in His kingdom. And that brings us to our text today. So in verses 19 through 21 and verse 24, Jesus gives another one of these do and do not statements. Um, And this time it's it's dealing with treasure. Do do not store up treasure on earth. Do store it up in heaven. Um, But this time he does something very different with this particular command. For the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, he's tied it to our hearts. He hasn't said that about prayer specifically. He hasn't said that about forgiving one another. He hasn't said that about any of the other commands that he's given so far. But now he says that this particular thing, the treasure that you store up is tied to our hearts. Now, specifically said 19 through 21 and verse 24, um, and I left out 22 through 23 because those were the ones that uh, I mentioned a moment ago. And if we read those verses omitting 22 and 23, it has really—it flows. You you take out those really hard verses, and it it flows really nice. Listen to it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven— where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will also be also. No one can serve two masters for neither he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, first observation, that's really easy. It's straightforward. Jesus is talking about money. Focus on the kingdom. Don't focus on money. We have a master to pick. Will it be God or will it be money? Seems pretty straightforward, right? Now, we all know that that's not very straightforward um, because when we start thinking about the idea that we have to choose God or we have to choose money, that brings in a lot of implications, a lot of other questions, right? Especially in our society because we sang some songs a moment ago. I'm going to go off script. Hopefully, I can find my place back sometime. But uh, we sang this song a moment ago about God of mercy. He, the God of mercy hears our plea. He says, "Abba, Father, be our strength and hope in this barren land." We don't live in a barren land. It, it doesn't feel like that most of the time in our society, right? I mean, most everyone in this room is doing okay. Even those of us that have the least money in our bank account. Are, are doing way better than barren land, right? Like most of us know where our next meal is, right? You've probably already planned lunch and dinner for today. Like we, we, this sets on us a little bit different, because we're in America, the land of plenty, right? We have a hard time seeing. Maybe we have a hard time seeing the kingdom of God as unshakable, matchless, and bountiful because the other kingdom we live in are all of those things most of the time, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Um, so opens a, a whole nother line of questions. Does this mean that we can have no savings? Does it mean that I have to sell everything and give it away, like suggested in Luke chapter 12. Um, I'll tell you what. I personally have wrestled with this quite a bit as I've studied this passage. And I don't know to what degree my Western culture upbringing is tainting my perspective. I don't know how to reconcile the the exactness of pick one God or money. Um, I I don't know how much that dictates my actions about storing up wealth. Um. And I mean, after all, laying up, storing up is not sinful. Like there are times when that's okay. It's actually not just okay, it's actually encouraged. It's prescribed in second Corinthians chapter twelve fourteen, if you want to write that one down and go back and look at it later. I don't know the exact answer to all of those specific questions about what it looks like to invest or not invest, to save for retirement. I, I, I don't have the exact answer for you this morning in this sermon. but what I do have is an idea of the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he preaches this. And if we if we look at the, the verses that we just read together as bookends to the verses that we left out in the middle, then we have to understand that those hard verses in the middle must have something to do with the same exact thing that he's talking about, right? Even in our headings, they're all lumped together under one topic. But they're really confusing. What do we do with that? And I think that... Uh, In order to interpret the context of of treasure um, and what Jesus is getting at in this passage at at the root, then uh, we're going to need to take those as bookends. We need to understand that those hard verses must be talking about earthly treasure. Now, that doesn't help us much when we come to the English translation and what is said here, but... Thankfully, Jesus used this exact same terminology one other time when he was preaching, and that is in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. Um, if you look at your footnote to uh, verse 24 or verse 23, it will give you Matthew 20, 15 as a cross-reference, and so we're going to go there, and we're going to look at what he says in Matthew chapter 20. Now, um, So turn there if you like. But beginning in verse one of chapter 20, Jesus tells a story and it starts like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The what? The kingdom. Jesus is still preaching about the same thing, you know, uh, 14 chapters later. But the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he tells a story. He says that the owner of the vineyard, he goes out in the morning, he finds some day laborers, and the people that don't have regular jobs, he hires them for a denarius to come and work in his vineyard. A denarius is a day's wage in the first century. It's, it's a fair day's wage. He didn't go out and cheat them. He didn't say, hey, you don't have a job today, I'll pay you half what you're worth. He gave him a fair day's wage. He says, come and work in my vineyard. And then about three hours later, that, that master went back, and he saw more men gathered. These guys weren't standing there the first time, or he would have hired them then. But they've shown up later in the day, these other guys that don't have jobs, and he hires them. He says, I'm going to give you a fair wage. Come work. He does not say a denarius. He says a fair wage. Come work in my, king, in my vineyard. Then he goes back again in about three hours. And he says the same thing. I'll give you a fair wage. Come work in the vineyard. He does this three more times. And he hires these guys. They come and they work. And at the end of the day, he pays them in the order of not the first one that worked, but the last one that started working. They'd worked maybe an hour or so. And he lines them up and he pays the one that worked the shortest amount of time a denarius, a day's wage for coming to his vineyard. And then the next one, he pays a denarius. And the next one, a denarius. And he goes through the list and he pays all of these men, although they had worked different amounts of time, the same amount of money. And he gets down to the last one and the story changes a little bit. It says that the last one, the one who had agreed on a denarius comes and he grumbles that you gave all the, he's expecting, the story tells you that he was expecting more than a denarius Because he had seen what everyone else was paid. And the master gave him a denarius. And he grumbles and he says, you paid everybody else more. Why did you pay me? And the, the master reminds him of what he had offered him. He offered him a generous day's wage. A day's wage, and he wasn't happy with it. And the story closes like this. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, in that story, did you hear the same thing that we heard in the Sermon on the Mount? Not at all. Because if you'll look in your footnote on that last verse, verse 15, look down there, it will say or is your eye bad because I am good? Now, neither time in the English translation is it translated, is your eye bad because I'm good? We don't know what that means. We don't get the first century idiom that goes along with it. So they try to translate these things into ways that we can understand them. But the idea here is that The bad eye is an idiom for selfishness. The worker couldn't see the reality of what was going on because of his selfishness. He had agreed to something, and all of a sudden he got greedy and wanted more. He couldn't see that the master of the vineyard had been good and gracious to him. And provided him what he had promised. And beyond that, he couldn't see about how abundantly gracious he was being to his brothers. Think about a Jewish community. These men that were standing around waiting for day labor, they knew each other. This man was so selfish in in what he had prearranged as an okay wage that He couldn't even be happy for the fact that his brothers, his kinfolk, his friends were getting something that was so good. Now, if we take that concept and we come back to verses uh, 19 through 24 and we read them in this mindset, if we, if we look to chapter six and we just strive to have an eye, a lamp, as it's described in the text, that allows us to see the reality that there is a new kingdom that Jesus is talking about, and that there is a master in that kingdom that is abundantly generous, If we don't have bad eyes, if we don't come to this new command with bad eyes, if we come to it with a good eye that's able to see the generosity of the master, I hope that it will sound really, really different rather than weighing it maybe against the way we've been brought up in our current course. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other for he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The reality of the new kingdom is that it is more valuable than earth and all of its perishables. The reality is that God is more valuable than money. The reality, the, the thing that we should see with a good eye, not with a b- bad eye, is that The kingdom has a master which is generous, a master that provides. God wants us to see him for who he really is, a good father that's in control, and he wants us to live as such. So when Jesus says you'll be a master of something, either money or God, what is he saying? Because money doesn't talk. I mean, we say that in our culture, right? Because God's money, right? We we say that money talks, but it doesn't talk. So when when Jesus is saying you're going to be a master of one of these, um, what's he saying? And he's saying that no man can serve Word there means belong wholly to, to be entirely under the command of. Because we're talking about first century terminology here. When when you're talking about serving, like these guys that went and worked in the vineyard, they were serving. They were day laborers. They were just above. Slaves already had jobs. They were already off doing work. These were free men that were impoverished. And they hired themselves out to go and work for money. We don't think about that in our culture, right? Like, right, when you go to work so that you can earn money, so you can have the things that you need, you're not enslaved to your boss, right? We don't like to use that terminology, But, but you're in service to them. Right, You don't go do your job, you don't get paid, and then you can't get all the things that you need. So when Jesus is asking, what are you in servant to? What are you in mastered by? This is the way we should be looking at it. This is the way we should be thinking about it. I don't think often that we take that state of mind that that we have to pick one or the other because in our culture we think it's okay we can, we can be enslaved to both right or we can be partly in service to one and the other but I think that well think about it this way how When you think about when you're in service to one of these things, how are you thinking? Are you thinking, how can I maximize the benefits of my money for me and my family? How can I lay up money so that I can have the earthly things that I want? Or do I lay them up so that I don't have to worry about my future needs? Or... Are you thinking, how can I lay up riches that allow me to live in such a way as to maximize God, who is really my master? Now, we want tangible points, right? We're, we're, we're sitting in the room, and you all are thinking the same thing. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um. And I told you, I don't have the, the intricacies of each one of those particular finance situations. And really, I could only come up with this one question to measure. And it was, when the world looks at us, when the world looks at, at the church, you and I, those of us that make up the church, when the world looks at us, are they able to see that it is God, not my money, that is my treasure. That question probably hurts for a lot of us. It certainly does for me. Um, our last section the text in your Bible, likely titled, Do Not Be Anxious. Often this is taken as a command as if Jesus is telling you, stop it, don't be anxious. That can be quite discouraging. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, do not be anxious. He says it in verse 25, but uh, about your life, whether you eat, drink, have clothing, don't be anxious. And then verse 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you wear, don't be anxious. About tomorrow, don't be anxious. Have you ever tried to somebody tell somebody that's anxious, like, really in the moment, just in, in, in the snare of anxiety? Have you ever tried to tell them, "Don't be anxious." It Doesn't work. A person can't hear that. And I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think he's looking at anxious people and saying, stop it. I think that if we look at the context like we have so far of what Jesus is saying, it's a really different message. Because Jesus shifts from saying, do this to look at what you receive when you seek the kingdom and my righteousness. I'm gonna kind of paraphrase this section so that we can see it a little more clearly. Starts off with, therefore, I tell you. Like, he like, he straight up says, pick a master. And you can't serve both. And then he says, therefore, since you have decided to live in such a way as to maximize God and his kingdom. He's he's assuming the crowd. He's assuming the best of them. He have, they have chosen to seek first the kingdom. And now he says, since you've done chosen to live this way, fear not. Do not be anxious about the things you need to live this way. Look at all the examples of your good father. In the midst of saying, don't be anxious, he doesn't say, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. He says, don't be anxious. Look at a proof that your God's gonna take care of you when you seek his kingdom. He says, look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap but your God your your father who sees you he's in control he'll provide just like he provides for the birds he feeds them look at the flowers they don't clothe themselves but the father has decorated the grass greater than he did Solomon he says the body is more than food and clothes seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will take care of it. All of those things. The lack of anxiety is a promise to seeking first the kingdom. And I bet, for honest, all of those things that ensnare us and anxiety are probably ways that we're not seeking first the kingdom. So, in closing, church, man, I'm way further over than I thought we'd be. Um, hear this, you guys can go ahead and come up. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. Um, our King Jesus is not one who uses oppression to obtain loyalty in His kingdom. He is delivering a sermon in which he's, he's inaugurating the new kingdom. He's describing what that kingdom is going to look like. What he, the, the great, the really good, pleasurable picture of what it can look like if we'll just follow his instruction as king. It's a kingdom for those who, who recognize the need for Jesus and we find that surpassing righteousness in him that we can live through faith and that he will enable us to live lives that set us apart. Not set us apart in a way that is like the hypocrites, that's really showy, but one that's really humble. One that says, look at what God is doing, what he has done in my salvation and the way that he's changing my heart. That seek obedience and controlling anger, and showing forgiveness and generosity to the poor, lives that are centered around prayer and fasting the morning of this world not looking like the kingdom that he describes. A kingdom in which we have the power to seek his righteousness and the treasure. That is him and his kingdom over anything else that this world has to offer. And in that, we're not to be anxious in obedience because we have a father that knows us. He knows that you need all those things. He made us that way. He made us to enjoy the abundance of what this world has to offer just not to make it our God. Paul was inspired by these very words of Jesus when he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Let me pray for us, church. Father, we come before you in the righteousness of Jesus. A righteousness that exceeds that of the law, that of the Pharisees. Holy Spirit, move in your people. Turn our hearts from every other allegiance that we May give our hearts in loyalty to the King of Kings. Allegiance to Jesus that changes the way we do life. That it changes the way that we see our finances. That it changes the way we see the use of our time, our gifts. That they all be maximized in making you and your kingdom known. Father, we thank you now for the anxiety that will be relieved as we turn away from the world and we turn to your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray.